Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... What's really going to happen is we're going to start seeing faculty and students developing what works for that learning community inside that class. And there's going to be more flexibility around recording lectures so people can watch them asynchronously if they want to. And I think more focus on where do you get value in the experience and sitting in a classroom, listening to somebody lecture, arguably has never been super valuable. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. As a little girl, my guest watched her mom getting her family out of poverty through education. Today, she's making an impact on the world, helping to alleviate poverty and promoting gender equity through accessible and affordable online education. She has a bachelor's in photography from Rochester University, a master's in learning design and technology from Stanford University, and a doctorate in educational leadership and change from Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara. I'm thrilled to introduce you today, Christine Palmer, Director of Online Learning Programs at the University of Virginia, where she manages their online site, which showcases a diverse range of courses, certificates, and degrees across the University of Virginia. In addition, Christine oversees 52 courses and seven specializations on Coursera, serving over 4 million students with net revenues of more than 12 million US dollars. She's also the administrator of LinkedIn Learning and Coursera for the University of Virginia for student, staff, and faculty professional development. Christine regularly publishes best practices for teaching online and hybrid courses and provides faculty training through various services, from self-serve how-to guides and videos to -to one-to-one consultations and workshops. During our conversation, we unpack the design of online learning and distance education programs offered across the University of Virginia. We also discuss the community of inquiry framework and share best practices for cognitive, teaching, and social presence. We conclude our conversation with a deep dive into the African Scholarship Cohort, the flagship program of the nonprofit organization Distance Education for Africa. Christine shares her experience running the African Scholarship Cohort program that offers monthly entrepreneurship courses available for free through a collaboration between the University of Virginia and Coursera. To provide a localized resource for business students and leaders who want to create robust businesses in Africa, Christine co-published the book African Business Case Studies, Volume 1, a collection of business case studies written by the participants of the African Scholarship Cohort. Tune in to learn from an inspirational leader in higher education 
who is opening doors for people in Africa who are accessing things they never thought were possible and leading lives that have fundamentally changed course because of access to free online education. Let's dive right in. Hello, Kristen. Welcome to Impact Learning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite memory related to learning? I, so I have two stories. I grew up poor. My family was divorced very young, and I ended up in a household that my stepfather was in the military, and we moved around a lot, and it was not a great scenario. And I watched my mom claw us out of poverty by going back to school and getting her degree and then getting her CPA degree. Now, that was definitely a wake-up call for me of the importance of education and social mobility and economic mobility if you have a degree. I remember her going back to school and doing night school. My brother, we would play the Pink Panther. Um, and I, I would hide in classes and he would wait for me to come out and attack him um, as, the, as the servant. But um, it was probably in sixth grade for me. So I would say probably 11 or 12 years old is when she finished her CPA degree. And then, yeah, I had my one uh, teaching moment of really connecting with a faculty member that cared about who I was and where I was going and opened up the doors of my experience in my master's degree program. And I just sent him a note last week, Decker Walker at Stanford University. And he yeah, I had that moment in his office during a one-on-one talking about this mandatory internship that we had to do where he just kind of blew the doors off of what was possible. And it, I was like, I can do that, you know, like so enabling for me as a student. Yeah. You see what you talked about now, like uh, when you see someone else open up a door or show us a pathway that we haven't seen before. It's a big aha moment. Huge. Because we cannot imagine. People say you can imagine. Well, you cannot imagine if you don't see something. <laughs> exactly. Or you don't have role models or people that look like you or have exposure to that. Mm-hmm. So at this point, as you are seeing your mom with and the impact of education on social mobility, you're still a little girl. Yes. So what, uh, what are you thinking you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> yeah, I I hadn't really thought about career options. I did a junior year abroad in the Netherlands for my junior year of high school. And I was academically strong, but also artistic. And my host mother was, she gave me the idea, maybe I should be a product designer or an industrial designer. But I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed art. My undergrad's in photography. But as I was going through my undergrad, I was a TA for all four years of being an undergrad. And teaching was definitely the thing that felt right. What were you teaching? Which subject? I was a TA for photography. And so, you know, I still remember students coming in like last two weeks of the semester and not knowing how to put their chemicals in order for developing film. Are developing prints. It's like, have you not been in class for the last semester? So um, it, it was a fun journey to see how people's art skills improved and their ability to 
frame pictures and composition and subject matter, as well as the technical expertise of just, this was still film and paper developing. And so the technical expertise of being in the, in the dark room. Mm -hmm. So what did you do after college? Well, I knew that I wanted to be an instructor and I was thinking collegiate level faculty in art and I had a bunch of student debt from undergrad. And so I decided that I would go to three different state schools to evaluate their programs and then move to that state for residency, work there for a year and then start graduate school. And so I had this plan. <laughs> so I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then Phoenix, Arizona, and then Seattle, Washington. But in Phoenix, Arizona, I, I got a little sidetracked where I, I came in and I was staying at the youth hostel and I ended up going to dinner with some friends from undergrad and I invited a couple people from the youth hostel to this dinner and it started pouring in the middle of the desert and we had this great dinner and then after dinner, running to the car, this handsome Canadian guy asked me if I wanted to bike across Canada that summer And so I said, yes. And I called my parents the next day and I told them I met the guy I'm going to marry. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately then moved to Phoenix, Arizona and started working there to get start doing residency because, of course, I loved Arizona State University the most. And then four months later, I went up to Canada and I biked across Canada with this very handsome guy and landed in New York City doing some work in a digital pre-press lab which was a great reinforcer that I did not want to do that for the rest of my life. It was a horrible job. <laughs> great people, but horrible job. And so I kicked around, came back to California for some family reasons and started working at Hewlett Packard. What did you do at the Hewlett Packard? Um, so I started off as a temp to pay off all the student loans that I had. And I was doing data entry. And then I temped as an admin for somebody that was on maternity leave. And then they hired me as a full-time employee, got a bunch of money for somebody very in debt. And I ended up being a knowledge engineer. They had this very interesting quandary. This was in the mid-1990s. And traditionally, their employees had worked their careers in one or two jobs. And so people were working in the same role for 20, 30, 40 years and getting a pension. And all of a sudden, they were seeing this cultural shift where people were working in jobs for one or two years. And I was hired to try to figure out how to capture that organizational learning from those individuals so that people could onboard faster and be efficient uh, and capable in their jobs without having to be in the job for 20 or 30 years. Did you have all the skills you needed to do this specific job from, I guess, for, through your education and overall experience? Or did you have to learn things like hands-on, you know, on the job? Definitely hands-on on the job. And I think it was more about the soft skills of being able to work on a team, listen to people, really active listening and reflecting back. What I hear you say is this, to try to get an understand of what really were the organizational needs And Hewlett-Packard at that time, it was a fantastic place to work. And it was still kind of, you know, Bill and Dave were the fathers of the organization. And they believed that if their employees were happy, their customers would be happy because their employees would build great products. And so it was a lot of having the scaffolding from an organization where they had 
a strong engineering bias and a lot of project management infrastructure, and then having the soft skills to be able to talk with people and collaborate with people. And I got exposed to so many just fantastic things. It was it was right when the internet was first becoming more widely used. And I got to coordinate an industry-wide panel for coming up with a, a privacy policy from industry because we were getting government regulators saying that they were going to do it if we didn't do it. And just these fantastic opportunities that it was very much that beginning of startups and the Silicon Valley emergence into the into the internet and how our culture has morphed in the last 20 years to be digital. Mm-hmm. Very good. What comes after HP? So when I was still at HP, they sponsored me to go back to get my graduate degree. And so I went to Stanford University to their learning design technology program. And that program was really looking at how can we use technology and education. And I was in a role where I was trying to figure out how to do employee onboarding and capture organizational learning. And so it was a fantastic program and a cohort of 16. And I'm in probably weekly contact with 25% of that cohort 20 years later. It was a very close-knit group. After that, I went back to Hewlett-Packard. You know, they helped fund my graduate degree. And then I got lured into the startup world. So I went to a few different startups. My last startup was eBay. And after that, I went into education and K-12 through education at the Children's Health Council specifically looking at setting up a technology lab for a small cadre of students that they were in between residential programs and public schools. And so it was a school of about 90 students, K through 12, that all had learning disabilities as well as behavioral issues. And so I'd set up a technology lab, a technology curriculum, and then I got to develop some custom software for our autistic students. We had about 20 autistic and Asperger's students. And so I got to build life skills. It was a behavioral drill and kill program for the autistic students on navigating life skills. So this sounds quite different now to me compared to what you've done before. So what are the new skills you acquired at this place? I think what happened was when I was at Hewlett-Packard, I had the strong project management skill set and soft skills. And then when I went to Stanford, I had a strong education foundation. And so leaving Stanford, going back to HP, and then going through startups, I definitely had on my project manager, technical project manager, program manager hat. And then coming into education, it was building on that foundation from Stanford of trying to figure out, you know, real world problems and trying to get students engaged with one another. And it was very interesting because our autistic kids, especially, they could communicate with one another so much more effectively if they were chatting with each other versus face-to-face conversations. And so the skills that I used at Children's Health Council were definitely based in my Stanford education. How did you figure out what was their preferred way of communication or what were their preferences in terms of learning? How did you go about understanding their needs and wants and preferences? So I totally, I live community of inquiry. That's my framework of reference. And so in community of inquiry, there's 
the cognitive presence, which is like the meat and potatoes of what you're, you know, what readings you're assigning or what lectures you're giving. There's the social presence of building that community in that classroom community and that sense of belonging. And then there's teaching presence of actually showing up and getting to know your students for who they are. And at the Children's Health Council, you met their parents, <laughs> you know, you had this extended view into their lives. And it was when I first learned that as a as a teacher, you can give 110% and it's still not enough because they're your children. They, you know, they become your surrogate children and, you know, really trying to help them be successful and then watching them. And if you've ever seen a child, like when they're failing, it's just consuming and it, it goes, it's like dominoes that get splayed down where all of a sudden everything else in their life always also starts going sideways. But the opposite is also true, that when you get an aha moment where, you know, you have an autistic child that, you know, creates a, a card for somebody in PowerPoint and prints it out and they they just light up, they start being successful in every other part of their life as well. And so it was it was a very kind of black and white illustration of you see these students that you're just failing and trying to figure out how to get them turned around. And then you have other students that just completely sparking joy and wonderful and you see them accomplishing so much. What about like the approach you talked about? Even if a student does not have the specific needs, how does this framework apply to every other student you can think of? So I do think that the community of inquiry framework applies everywhere. And I feel like everyone should be a student. I'm a fan of the lifelong learning. The only thing that is constant is change. And we have to keep learning to be able to adapt to our environment. And so I feel like everyone needs to be a learner and that, you know, having that framework of being able to access content, that cognitive presence, being able to feel like you belong as part of something Uh, for that social presence and then that teaching presence of somebody actually cares what you're doing. That I think that framework works. And I, I own the 74 uh, massive open online courses and seven specializations that the University of Virginia has. And, you know, one of the things that we have is that how do you build that community, that sense of belonging, and how do you build the teaching presence of people feeling like they're, it's not all just self-directed and they're in their own space but that somebody actually cares what they're doing. And doing that at scale is very challenging. Mm-hmm. There is social presence, teaching presence, and then cognitive presence. So these are the three pillars. Would you share with us, like, the, let's say, a couple of uh, good examples or best practices within each of these categories just to get a little bit more idea of, uh, you know, how the framework applies? Sure. Typically, when we talk about community of inquiry, it's represented in a Venn diagram. So it has three overlapping circles. And then the middle is educational experience, (laughs) effective education experience. And so an example of cognitive presence, it might be, yeah, I like the universal design of learning where there's plus one. And so there might be multiple options for students. Maybe it's watching a TED talk. Maybe it's writing a paper, maybe it's interviewing an expert, maybe it's listening to a lecture, maybe it's coming and participating in some sort of group activity. But cognitive presence is is that kind of making meaning of the content of the course. And, and traditionally, we 
yeah, we'll approach it from a backwards design perspective where you think, okay, what do students need to get at the end of this program? And based on what I want them to be able to do, that's how you define what your content will be and your assessments for that content to see if what you're providing them as content is working. And then in social presence, we have this in spades if you go on campus to a university. So you're part of the UVA's Wahoo Wah, and we have a rotunda, and we have a lawn that fourth-year students try to live on, and we have a bunch of lingo, like first-year, second-year, third-year, fourth-year. We have secret societies. Those are all kind of that social belonging, like you're part of something more, where the, you know, basketball champions, you know, tennis, you know, it's the sports, it's all of that belonging. If you're not on a college campus and you're a professional looking for that sense of belonging, what you'll see often is that if you sign up for a certificate program where there's a cohort, you end up being part of that greater cohort. And so there's more sort of social accountability for you to show up. And especially when we're looking at social presence, a lot of people will do team-based assignments or activities. Some of the great ideas that have come out of pandemic-inspired teaching at the University of Virginia is this idea of having a five-minute connection time at the beginning of class where you get, you pair different students with one another, and they're not allowed to talk about class or their assignments, but they talk about life because you're human, and it's connecting with other people wherever you're at and being part of that larger context. So that's, that's your social presence. And then teaching presence is getting to know your students by their name and understanding, okay, why is Maria in this course now? Like, where is she coming from? Oh, she was in chemistry and this is where she's at now and this is where she wants to go. And understanding how the content that you're delivering kind of fits into that larger spectrum. And Oh, is she on her cell phone attending class? Is she in person? Is she working? Is she not working? Like, what's her family circumstance? That's teaching presence. And so the easiest one is that kind of getting to know your students by name is like number one on that list. Let's go back a little bit more to your story, because we have not covered how how you arrived to Virginia, to <laughs> University of Virginia. Yeah. So how did you, yeah, how did you find your way to your University of Virginia? Sure. Okay. So I was at the Children's Health Council for five years and I became a mama for the first time there. And so I then started a phase of moving around for my husband's job. So my husband was definitely climbing the corporate ladder and we moved down to Southern California where I had my second Bambino. And then I started doing some consulting because I needed flexibility. So the first part of my career was like, oh, I can make money. The second part of my career was flexibility around, I have two children. And, you know, if I'm only going to work an hour because I need to go to the dentist and somebody has a fever and I need to get diapers, like I only charge for an hour and I don't feel guilty. And if I work 24 hours because we're patching servers, I bill for 24 hours. And so I ended up consulting at Disney as a technical project manager for about five years. And that was a phenomenal job. The, you know, it was definitely putting back on my project management hat, but I have never worked in an environment where they've hired such nice people. You know, it wasn't the rock star coders 
but it was just such a lovely environment with just wonderful people. So I was at Disney for about five years until we moved again for my husband's job. And we ended up in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I said, oh, I really would love to go back into education instead of project management. And I got a job. I was very fortunate and got a job as the community manager. It was called the local, it is called the Local Support Partners Community. And at the University of Virginia, they have 13 schools. And once upon a time, IT was so small that it was centralized. And then desktop computers came on the scene and then the internet came on the scene. And so each of those 13 schools has, they all have technical teams, but there's still a central team for help desk and Wi-Fi and privacy and security. And so I was the community manager promoting communication and best practices across all of the schools and bringing that community together. And it was a fantastic view into all the different schools at UVA. And my office was next to the vice provost and chief information officer, James Hilton, and MOOCs came onto the scene. And I was kind of in a a law with my job. I had everything under control. And I asked my boss, you know, can I volunteer to help? And so I went to our VP CIO, who was James Hilton at the time. And I said, just so you know, my grad degree is from Stanford in learning design technology. I'm a PMI, PMP certified project manager. And I've worked at startups, including eBay. If you need any help, I would love to help on this project. And that was 10 years ago. <laughs> so I am super fortunate. I worship James. He's great. But it, it definitely was a rocket ship at the beginning. And we got six courses out. We signed in June of 2012 in an eight-hour Sunday afternoon contract negotiation session. And then we had our first six classes up in that fall semester. And since then, we now have a portfolio of 74 courses and seven specializations. And we also have a program that we've built uh, that's an African scholarship cohort program. You basically started and you were involved from the beginning as you were building this, which is fascinating because it, it's a completely different story, you know, yes. versus versus coming when it's already going compared to building it. So this is amazing. First of all, help me understand. So these are like the online learning programs at UVA, at University of Virginia. How do they come into play with everything else that the University of Virginia is offering to students? This is an excellent question. The University of Virginia is definitely... We see ourselves as being a face-to-face residential experience. We just celebrated our 200th birthday. And Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, is the founder of our university. And so we very much see, you know, history and tradition and face-to-face. And we have a beautiful, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site campus in Central Virginia. We have had several programs that have been active online from before 2012. So we have a school for continuing professional studies that has two bachelor completion programs. We have an engineering school that has many master's levels programs online. And our education school has both master's and a doctorate program online. And so those programs were established and run within the schools, very decentralized. And MOOCs kind of were... MOOCs became centralized because our business school 
Darden Business School said, hey, this is really interesting what's happening. We want to be part of this. And our College of Arts and Sciences, they were interested in flipping the classroom and trying to figure out how to facilitate flipping the classroom and what that meant. And so we had two different schools that were looking at the same solution for two different reasons. And so three of the first courses that we launched on Coursera were business school courses, the foundations of business strategy, grow to greatness, and then new business models in society. And then we had three classes that were from the humanities in our colleges of arts and sciences. And so they weren't anything like our online, fully online programs. They were definitely, at the beginning, especially our College of Arts and Sciences, we built semester-long courses. So we had 96 videos and 13 weeks of content. And that ended up not being the right fit for MOOCs, right? And our business school was a little bit more fine-tuned. We've launched newer versions of those courses since the original 2012 launch. But I would say our business school is is very active in online materials and they look more at, you know, stackable credentials and branding and helping people find the University of Virginia and understand how we differentiate our face-to-face environment. We tend to have smaller cohorts of people and there's a lot of social presence in the in the Darden experience. Whereas with our liberal arts, and we have some school of medicine, uh, some engineering, and a public policy course on Coursera, those are all more trying to understand what might online learning look like? How might this help facilitate a flipped classroom? And it's not so much branding or stackable credentials. It's more, let's pilot this and see what happens. Okay. So for those who are not very familiar, I think most of the people who are listening are. So the MOOC is basically the massive open online courses. When I think of them, I think of courses that hundreds of thousands of people can take. And I don't always think that there are smaller groups, cohort-based activities. But what you described sounds like a little bit of a hybrid between these things. When I think of the online programs you are offering, the ones now that they are either certificates, but also degrees, right, that we can take online, whether it's the business, the Darden business courses or others. How should I think of them, like between MOOC and cohort-based and the, let's say, on-campus? What's the environment? What's the learning environment? So I think on campus your blood's going to be blue and orange by the time that you're done and you're going to identify wahoo-wah, you're who, you're going to know. It's very much, you know, we are grounded in Charlottesville, Virginia. You'll go to Monticello. You'll hike through the vineyards. You'll go skiing at Wintergreen. You'll go on the beer trail. You will be part of that community of Charlottesville. Our online degree programs, we have all levels. We've got a bachelor, two bachelors, several masters, and then one doctorate program. Those are all going to be cohort-based uh, programs where you're with a group of people, you have a, an online student advisor that's making sure that you're registering, checking to see any kind of problems that you might be having, facilitating that experience, and you'll be working with faculty and peers, but it will be an online experience. And then the MOOCs are kind of the, on the edutainment side of here's some exposure to big ideas. Like Jean Lidka is one of our faculty members that 
she teaches design thinking, and that's one of our most popular courses. But there's kind of two models of design thinking. You're either the Stanford model of design thinking or you're the Jean Litka model of design thinking. And so it's that exposure to those ideas and those processes where it's not a TED Talk or a YouTube subscriber playlist. You're going to have assessments and there will be discussion forums for your community, but you're not going to feel like part of a cohort. Mm -hmm. So you have the online courses Mm-hmm. that they're again certificates and degrees that you talked about. Then you have Coursera for UVA. Yes. So what is it for? What purpose are you serving with that? So we do, we have professional development with Coursera for UVA as well as LinkedIn Learning. And so Coursera for UVA, we're part of the Coursera Partners Consortium. And so the Partners Consortium shares content with every other member of the Partners Consortium for free. And so no professional organizations, so like Google, other partners that are professional for-profit organizations are not part of that consortium, but other nonprofits are. And so those courses we have, I think it's about 2,600 courses in that portfolio that any student, staff, or faculty member at the University of Virginia can take for free. And it's been, it's been fascinating. We, so we launched that a year ago. And to see the trends of what's happening when. And so it's mostly students that are taking courses on Coursera for UVA. And it's mostly during summer holidays and winter holidays. And we have one student, she's completed 31 courses. I always tell people I estimate about three MOOCs is one semester course. And so You know, she's managed to take 10 semesters of uh, courses for free from different university partners that are just exceptional partners. So I feel very fortunate to be able to administer that program. We also do have LinkedIn Learning that's available through the university to any student, staff, or faculty member. And there are over 8,000 courses on that. That's much more edutainment where you just press play and listen. You don't have to take any exams. There's not as much rigor. But the... The breadth of content is amazing on that platform. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that Coursera courses and Coursera content is more for, I guess, additional competencies we want to uh, learn? And then maybe LinkedIn learning is more tailored towards skills? Or is this not a fair representation? You know, I guess I would say Coursera for UVA and Coursera courses in general have much more rigor than watching TED Talks or taking courses on LinkedIn Learning. I do think taking courses on LinkedIn Learning, you can have a vocabulary for, you know, I I love some of the courses on diversity, equity, inclusion, and understanding different types of bias. And just, you know, getting more familiarity with that lingo and understanding, you know, having that framework. Like we were talking earlier that you don't know it can exist until you see it exist. And so there's a huge amount of content on that platform whether you're trying to get some basic understanding of how to program in Python or manage your time better, there's going to be something on that platform that's going to be an easy-to-digest educational nugget by someone who's an expert in the field and a compelling presenter. I think both of them signal to employers that, you know, you believe in lifelong learning, you have curiosity, you're self-directed, you see the importance and value of learning and ongoing learning. I think 
as an employer, I'm not sure if I would realize how much more rigorous Coursera is than other formats. But on the back end, underneath the hood, I know it is a lot more rigorous. Looking over the last uh, year and a half or so with the pandemic, what have been the the changes or, or the changes in preferences in terms of learning for students, teachers, faculty, uh, staff, when you look at the different online programs you are offering and different online, I guess, uh, resources you are offering? Yeah. So I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a spike in people actually looking for certified online programs. And so when people were first realizing, oh, we might be in this for a semester, maybe even a year, people really started looking at, okay, I get the emergency remote teaching, but I don't really want to pay tuition for somebody to figure out how to use Zoom, that I'm just going to now listen to their two-hour lecture on a Zoom because it's like, oh, no, please don't do this. Please, no. And so, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw increased, you know, site traffic. We have all of our content that's online at the university's you can find it at online.virginia.edu. And so we we had big spikes in people looking at that site and looking at programs that had ranked nationally as online programs, Our, especially in our ed school. We have a lot of great programs. And so we saw increased interest in that, you know, twice the amount of people applying for programs than traditional. Same number of spots that we have, unfortunately, but many more candidates applying for those programs. I do think we're a face-to-face institution and we're having this conversation around feeling like we're on a pendulum where we were, everything was face-to-face and then we sort of swung to emergency remote teaching. And now there's this desperation, I would say, by the administration to be back to -to face-to-face. But maybe the faculty and the students are not in that same boat. And there's, I think there's some disparity and some studies are coming out now looking at faculty, student, and administrator perspectives of coming back in person versus going online. And the disparity between what administration wants versus faculty versus students, and and especially non-traditional students. We have these conversations. We have a campus in Northern Virginia in the Washington, D.C. area. And I just roll my eyes. It's like, who wants to spend time in D.C. traffic trying to get to an in-person class? Like, yes, let's totally have a cohort where we have an orientation and we go wine tasting through Central Oregon on a beautiful weekend. Or we go tour Monticello together or we brainstorm and have leadership activities where we're defining our styles and building marshmallow and pasta towers. But don't make people sit in traffic around D.C. And so I think... Students appreciate the flexibility, but they don't they don't want the emergency remote teaching where you're on Zoom for hours listening to somebody drone on and there's zero engagement. Yeah. But students, I think, need the experience, the social interaction, as you talked about, the social... And the teaching presence, exactly. And the teaching presence. And so they need the connection, connection with the teacher, the faculty, connection with each other, so peer. Yes. We're social beings, Right. At the same time, I also hear from you and from others about the cohort-based. Mm-hmm. So the learning group, the, you know, we are working together, we are ser- solving problems. Again, it's more interesting learning. So what other aspects? You mentioned a little bit earlier the flipped learning, mm-hmm. which uh, I just had an interview 
with Professor uh, Robert Talbert, who has also written a book about uh, flipped learning, which is an interesting concept that you don't have to be, you know, the synchronous or you don't have to be for hours and hours, you know, watching a lecture or listening to a lecture, whether it's in person or on Zoom, it doesn't matter. So there are certain things we can do. So how much of these other options are you exploring as you look at the post-pandemic and then maybe a little like further out? What other options are you considering as you are rebuilding and redesigning the pedagogy and the curriculum? Yeah. So the way that the University of Virginia, like the conversations I've had with my peers at UVA is is that we're on this pendulum swing and the pendulum is swinging back to being fully in person. And then I think probably a year after that, we're going to start seeing people, because we do have a lot of autonomy in our different schools, you know, faculty can do what's right for them. You know, there are course evaluations and there is oversight from the deans and administration looking at how courses are taught and modalities. But I think there are more voices. I I was just talking to one of our students in a doctoral program the other day, and she was saying, you know, our instructors in L.A. because they had family health issues and we all work. And so we want to have an online class, but we can't have an online class because everybody has to be back face to face. And the class is from 2 to 3.30 every Tuesday and Thursday. (laughs) And so nobody can make it. And so there's this like tension of it's just not going to work. And I think people will make it work. But I think what's really going to happen is we're going to start seeing faculty and students developing what works for that learning community inside that class. And there's going to be more flexibility around recording lectures so people can watch them asynchronously if they want to. And I think more focus on where do you get value in the experience? And sitting in a classroom, listening to somebody lecture arguably has never been super valuable. And so being able to use that time, some of the things I've loved to see at UVA is we've had, we had one professor, she's now passed on, but she took her large lecture classrooms. She did all the lectures asynchronously on videos for students to watch and then used the large lecture classrooms as study groups. And she'd assign study groups and then she'd walk around the study groups and then she'd take these teachable moments of like, hey, I've come across three groups that are all having problems with this concept. Let's work through this and let me clarify. Let me give you some more examples. And everybody was in the same physical place, but rethinking how we're using our spaces and how we're designing the time in those spaces. Mm -hmm. What are the, the lessons we learned? Or maybe what are the lessons you learned, like you as an individual, but also as part of the organization of the institution during the pandemic that you think we need to to incorporate into the design of the the next phase or the next new norm? So I would say the thing that we're launching a website called Small Changes, Big Impact. And I think There are so many kind of micro changes. And I I talked about one earlier of, you know, taking the first five minutes of class to pair people up and talk about life so that there's this human connection and building of that community. Um, There are all sorts of other examples of like really small, like, okay, we're going to use Google Slides and do introductory slides for each person so you know who they are and like, how do you pronounce your name and like, what are your interests or these micro changes that don't take a lot of effort, like having virtual, you know, alumni come in 
to classrooms and talk to students or sending out gift kits to people in preparation for an event where they can have like a goodie bag that they, you know, not, not huge from an effort perspective or, or using different ed tech where it's like, oh, you know, Gradescope is one of the centrally licensed tools at the University of Virginia for grading. And like, oh, hey, I can be more efficient and, you know, provide better, better feedback. I think there are so many not huge investments. One of the faculty members at UVA and our law school, Rip Verkirke, he said a very funny comment back in, we, we started an innovation and pedagogy summit. That's a once a year conference back in, I think, 2014. And he was one of the first presenters. And he made this comment that when he first taught online, he tried to build a 787 when really he should have, he was the Wright brothers and he should have just tried to get air. And like that concept of you don't have to do everything, but like come at your approach from a community of inquiry framework. And like, how can you do one thing in each of those circles or really look at what your learning objectives are and then making sure that your activities are mapping to those learning objectives or making your course navigation consistent or small changes, but cumulatively huge effect. Small changes, big impact. I love that. Very nice. Uh, This is a very good uh, principle to keep in mind as we, you know, as we're rebuilding and redesigning and recreating. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't try to build the 787. Yeah. Because great online programs it is a ton of work and it's not cheaper and it takes a lot of effort and you have to update your content and it takes a large infrastructure to make sure that they're quality and the faculty are supported and you have to change the way people are compensated. It's huge. Yeah. You know what? You mentioned something, Kristin, that I really like. You said that you were able to work at the Walt Disney Company. Yes. Because they gave you the flexibility to either work one hour or five hours. And that is now for, you know, for work, for career. However, when we think about learners, I consider myself lifelong learner. Sometimes I study more than I was studying when I was in college. That's 30 years ago. But this is by choice. But I also like that I have the flexibility to learn on my own terms and use different modality and different technology based on, again, what I'm looking to do. Sometimes I read a book for six hours. Sometimes I listen to a podcast for an hour. This is all educational. But I have different options, which again, I did not have when I was in college because more or less everything was in books and in print. Thinking of flexibility and also giving more options so then we can hopefully increase access to education and learning. That's how I view it. Yeah, and I and I love that concept of flexibility and really what you can do with online and being more open-minded around what is educational content. I do think there's a product stackability of free courses or a PBS or books all the way to fully online degree programs. And there's a lot of steps in between. You're doing quite a bit of work with the distance education for Africa. What is this and how did you get involved in that? Because I think a a lot of that is about giving underserved people access to education. With Distance Education for Africa, this is, it was actually a student idea that brought us to this. So our Darden Graduate School of Business has a international consulting course that students can take. And there was a cohort that went through that course 
that they proposed learning ecosystem for Africa. And they were specifically looking at a university that's in Uganda and helping that university create an ecosystem in their community where local employers would hire students from the university for internships and then employees from the local businesses would go to the university for ongoing certification or or ongoing lifelong learning opportunities. And they needed a little bit of a a kickstart. (laughs) And so they came to me and said, hey, can we use some of UVA's online education content so that we have some content to start this program? And I was introduced to the partners in Mabara, Uganda, and then Distance Education for Africa. And now had a partnership with Distance Education for Africa for the last six years. And we're just coming up to our 30,000 scholarship recipient. So we've had dozens of courses this year. Our focus is on entrepreneurship. And so if you go to deafrica.org, you can see the free classes that are coming up. We're doing a three-course specialization on coding for entrepreneurship this summer. But every month, there's a new online class that anyone can sign up for to get access for free. And then we have a cohort. We have 13 different regional mentors that are on WhatsApp communities. But people sign up and then they get accepted into the scholarship. We send them a link to the course at the first day of the month. And then they have these WhatsApp groups for that social presence and teaching presence. And then we do do in-person events. So historically, we've had graduation ceremonies, but we didn't have one in 2020. But in 2019, there were nine different ceremonies. I haven't never gone to Africa with this program, but Siddiqui Trahore, who's the president of Distance Education for Africa, he hosted nine different programs. Some of our largest cohorts are in Botswana and Nigeria and Kenya, but we've reached learners in every single country in Africa. And it's designed on the community of inquiry framework. So Coursera provides the cognitive presence where it's a mobile first platform. And so learners can download all of the course materials if they have a Wi-Fi hotspot and do it offline on their mobile device. And then we have these WhatsApp communities for our social presence. And on and off, we've had different like panels and synchronous talks, but we find that actually more of the mentorship on the WhatsApp is is where people are getting more teaching presence. And, and there's a lot of fun We've had two courses now where we've had people finish it in one day. We had financial accounting and one of our learners is an accountant. And so she finished the course in one day and that set off a firestorm of, oh, so-and-so finished. And and then it encourages other people. And when we have our graduation ceremonies, that's a great opportunity to celebrate. And it encourages more people to check out what the programs are and, and what they might be able to learn in those programs. And it's been really transformational, like hearing some of the stories and people creating new businesses, hiring more employees. We've had a lot of gender equity in the programs where we've had some just women's cohorts, especially around entrepreneurship. But the main the main goals of the program are lasting economic impact and gender equity through education. And so it's we've had a couple of times where, you know, all the colleges in Kenya are shut down for a political reason. And then we have a bunch of college students participating in the program, but but it's mostly professionals and different jobs that are doing ongoing professional education through that program. Mm-hmm. 
So I heard the, um, the framework, the community of inquiry. Then I heard the mobile first, which is very, very important. Very important. You know, with Wi-Fi here everywhere, left and right, uh, up and down, we don't think so much. But I'll tell you, the younger generation, I have a nephew and he, every time I send him something, he only wants me to send things that he can operate on his smartphone on an app. Everything else is basically discarded. Yeah, I have, I have three sons. I don't understand why universities still send email. Yeah. So who covers for, for these scholarships that you talked about? There is 30,000. Like who, who covers the cost for that? Because I guess the students who gain that, they don't have to pay anything. Yes. So we're fortunate that Coursera thinks that this is a good program. And so our business school, uh, most of the courses have been our business school. We have a personal branding course that's very popular. So we've done that as well. That's a great course. If anybody's looking, it has so many good ideas around what are your three words and your mission statement and hiring your own board of directors of like, to help you with your career development. But most of the courses have been from our business school and they send out messages about the academic outreach and what we've been able to do in Africa. So it's the University of Virginia and Coursera have been covering the scholarships. Mm-hmm. That's very, very nice. It is very, very nice. I feel super lucky. And it was a student's idea from the beginning. So it's just wonderful. Yeah, because when I think of education, to me, a lot of that comes down to being aware of what's available, like of the options, Mm -hmm. but then have a pathway to access these options because everything else is more or less, you know, like talk versus, you know, people need access, like real access to the educational opportunities and resources. This is where everything gets done. Yes. And navigating for that access. You know, I do think Class Central, I love If you don't know their site, I love their site and they'll post resources of what's out there and people can review classes as well. But with the African Scholarship Cohort, we've had so many great stories of people will download their materials and then they share. They're like, do your errands, you know, listen to it on your way to work, you know, as you're vacuuming in the house, listen to it offline and then connect on the WhatsApp group to be like, okay, I'm not, I don't really understand economic rents. Does anybody have any examples of this or different concepts where people can mentor each other and provide that kind of social support in a more of a cohort base? Mm -hmm. You mentioned mentors. Yes. So uh, we have 13 different mentors in different regions in Africa. And so right now, we just had our second book baby where we're doing a series of books to try to raise money so that we can pay the mentors. (laughs) So that's like a little leapfrog, but we're doing, we're releasing five different books that are business case studies of regional African businesses that are written by the participants in the African scholarship cohort. So if somebody in Africa might not want to have a, you know, United Airlines business case study when they're trying to learn how to do a business, But they can look at like, oh, Chappie's grocery store and be like, oh, okay, this, I get this. This is here. It makes more sense. It's, it goes back to that modeling what, what's possible because you're familiar with it. But right now, everybody's volunteer everything on the African scholarship cohort. We're actively trying to raise funds and we're doing these books, trying to raise funds to try to help pay the mentors because we have mentors and then we have like key team in Kenya that have just been lovely and, a shout out to Marcella and John and Siddiqui and Ernest. We have a bunch of people that have been doing fantastic work, but it's all volunteer. Mm-hmm. 
you also look at like very much like the local needs and the local opportunities. So yes, a business case from an entrepreneur who loans their business in Africa, of course, is important for anybody who wants to launch a business in Africa. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, this is relevant. This is relevant local, like the WhatsApp, because that's what they have access to download when they have, you know, access to Wi-Fi or Yes. And then review it on their own time. So I hear a lot of customized and localized. Yes. I see a lot of opportunity when we look at now at the role of education. And I want to also have your thoughts on that. When you see at the, lo- the role of education and also the future of education and learning to make our lives better for social mobility, going back to mm-hmm. your mother, mm-hmm. like, you know, this is where we started our conversation. So where are the opportunities or what are the best practices? What what can we learn from so we can continue to make progress? Yes. So I love that question and kind of how what's the future of education and what what have we learned and how can we now apply it? I, I do have in my mind just a context of why I care about Africa and why everybody should care about Africa. One of the little tidbits that I'm not sure how familiar people might be who are listening to this. But, you know, 20% of the world's youth under 25 now are in Africa. And it's projected by the United Nations by the year 2030 that 42% of the world's youth under 25 will be in Africa because we're seeing a grain of the United States, a grain of China, a grain of Europe, a grain of India, all these major population centers and traditional power centers we're getting old and Africa is the new youth coming into and looking at the United Nations sustainability development goals, really trying to figure out how to get education and sustainability and solve some climate issues and major, you know, gender equity issues and quality issues. It's, I think Africa is pivotal to our success as a global community in the next 20 or 30 years. So with that, what, what do I think about education and where education is going I think the pandemic has definitely taught us that we're social beings and that connection and community is is really important. I know we have a professor at Darden. His name is Ed Hess. He has the Grow to Greatness 1 and 2. Oh, I like that smile. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I just started following him like three weeks ago. He's lovely. He's such a lovely person. Yes. <laughs> yes, he's such a lovely person. And he's written extensively around where is society going and where is business going and AI and really grounding leadership in humility and connection and controlling the self, managing the self, like understanding your emotions and your physical needs and and how you're communicating and connecting with one another and being kind with one another. He's a gem of a individual. But I think that that's, I think that, you know, he, he publishes that around business and leadership. But I think, boy, education, that is, we are people. And it's not this, you know, we had this saying back when people first started flipping classrooms where we said, you know, the, the sage on the stage versus the guide at the side. And I think there's this, I don't know what the cute lingo is going to be. Somebody out there who's got good marketing or jingles, you should please, please step up and let us know some of my thoughts. But it is this communal, like we are all equal and we're all members of this kind of diverse, awesome society with really big challenges that we need to solve together. And I think 
where education is going is trying to figure out how does each individual person fit into that and how can we keep learning and be connected with one another and respect each other and be kind to one another. Yeah, beautiful. On your mobile device. (laughs) And very data-driven decisions, yes. Yes, data-driven decisions. And as I always say, on the platform or the application of your preference. (laughs) Yes, personalization. I think that's one of the things that's coming out of, you know, when we look at mobile first and just watching more and more data out there, but being able to personalize what people are getting for recommendations for content they might be interested in or communities that they're interested in besides advertisers, but more of an education personalization. My favorite question, what's one thing that you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? So there's a great TED Talk that's called the Lollipop Talk, and it talks about how you can change somebody's life without even really realizing it. And like, if there's somebody that's done that for you, you should thank them. And so I think for me, my Africa program is definitely my moment where I hope there's some lollipops that I'm handing out there of people that they're getting doors opened to things that they never thought were possible. And they're leading lives that have fundamentally changed course because of the experience they've had with content from UVA. And then I have three kids. So like that, that's the other big (laughs) impact. (laughs) Raising three kids. But I have this surrogate children all throughout Africa that are mid-level professionals and hoping that they have these amazing journeys. So open doors for kids, whether it's your own kids that you brought, you know, you gave life to, you you gave birth to, or they are, you know, surrogate kids. Let's open doors for more kids and giving more access and giving more access. Yeah. And the thing that you said earlier, small, small changes, big impact. Because you can open a door. Yes. With a small change. Yeah. People talk about gratitude practice, like just being thankful for it. It changes your perspective and how people interact with you and trying to be your best self and be a nice person. It really does make a difference. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Christine. I loved our conversation. We talked about different, uh, different aspects of education and learning. And it was wonderful to learn about your work and the impact you are creating. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidu. Till next time.